Amen. Well, we're just going to jump right in and read. It's a longer story that I want to read to you today, but I want to read every word of it because the word of God is powerful when it's read. So we're going to look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, 42 this morning. So if you have a Bible, and turn with me there. We'll also have it on the screen, but read with me. Let's set our eyes into the text. Starting in verse 1, John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus, uh, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already 
The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is indeed the Savior of the world. All right, it's a long story. Thanks for sticking with me. Good job. A few twists and turns in that story, yes? Absolutely. Have you ever been in a conversation like this? It just seems to turn dead left at the moment you think we're going straight, right? Or it turns right and just the kind of subtle turns. But here's essentially the gist of the story or what I want to show you today. I want to show you as we look at this story how great and intentional Jesus' pursuit of you has been. Do you know that his, his pursuit of you to draw you into relationship with him and with the Father has been intentional on his part? Do you know that? And I want to try and convince you, or better, I hope that God's word will convince you that you should spend your life pursuing others the way God has pursued you. That you should spend your life pursuing others the way God has pursued you. Now, can I just be honest with you for a moment? This is an area where as a church, we need growth. We talk about it quite a bit. We're not great at verbalizing our faith. We're not great at it. I think the two reasons, as best I can tell, and I don't think it's just us. I think it's many believers across the landscape of our country. I think most of us struggle to share our faith because of two reasons. We are distracted and we are scared. I think those are the primary reasons why we fail to share our faith. We are a people sent with the gospel, but we struggle to live that out. And I think we struggle because we're distracted by a thousand entertainments and we're scared. We're scared of what others might think or what it would cost us. I think God's word today, not, not a preacher, but God's word wants to help you not be distracted and not be scared. Barna, in their most recent study, found that younger believers, uh, millennial believers, almost half of them, almost half of them believe that it's wrong, morally wrong, to share your faith with someone else, to convince them that they should believe what you believe. Now, if that's you, I want to convince you that you're wrong. Okay? Can I just be straightforward with you today? It's absolutely not morally wrong. It's morally right and morally imperative that we share our faith with others. I think our fear has gone so deep and so far that there's a generation rising up within the church who certainly are believers, genuinely, here week in and week out, and who love the Lord, but believe for, for a variety of reasons that it's wrong for them to try to convince someone else to share the faith that they have. That's not only misguided, it's counter-biblical because the very crux of Scripture is that God's people who have been pursued and loved by God and received bread when they were starving are meant to share that bread with other people. They're meant to pursue other people the way that we have been pursued by God. The other statistic that came up in this Barna study that they did is that, let me make sure I get the number right here. Yeah, it's, it's 
almost 40%, so I think it's about 38%, 37, 38% of followers of Jesus say they have no relationships with someone who doesn't believe. Now, if we are people sent with the gospel and 40% of us can't name a single unbeliever that we have a relationship with in our family or in our group of friends, that's problematic, right? Because it's gonna be much more difficult to accomplish the job that God has given us if we have no relationships. So perhaps today the application of this text will be a really simple one for you. It will be to begin to actually know some Samaritans, if you, know, if you get my drift there. To actually spend some time in Samaria the way Jesus spent time in Samaria. So those are my two encouragements today. I just wanna look at the story because it's rich, and if you got, grab the sermon notes, you notice we just have two points, and there's some subpoints underneath those today. But the first thing that we need to understand is that Jesus is determined to make worshipers for God. Jesus is determined to make worshipers for God, and the question that we wanna ask today is, how does he do it? How does he go about doing that? Because our Savior gives us some wonderful lessons about how to help people become worshipers of God today as we look at this story. But before we answer that question, we have to answer, what kind of worshiper does God want? Is that a fair question to ask? So if we're saying, well, Jesus is intent upon making worshipers for God, it's not just any kind of worshiper. It's a very specific kind of worshiper that Jesus is attempting to make. And he says it in this text when he says what? God is seeking people to worship him in, in what? In spirit and in truth. So we want to understand what that means. That's really the center of this whole passage. He's trying to help this woman become a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. And that's for all of us, whether we've been in the faith for a day or we've been in the faith for 50 years or we're not in the faith, the message that this text brings to us is that God wants you to be a worshiper who worships God in spirit and truth. So that's our first question. And then we wanna look a little bit at how does he go about that? How does he do that? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, my hope is that what you would see in this passage is that you'd be able to look at your own life and see all the ways that Jesus is doing just what he is doing here with this woman. He's doing it in your life. He, not, he may not be sitting physically present with you at a well talking to you, but make no mistake about it. He is doing exactly what he's doing for this woman. He's doing in you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he wants to teach you to do what he does. He wants you to learn how to do what it is he's doing here. So let's talk about what it means to worship in spirit and truth because the whole story centers around that phrase. To understand the power of what Jesus is up to in his conversation with this woman, we need a little bit of historical context and we need a little bit of context within the Gospel of John itself. So a little bit of historical context. You notice in the story that it said Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. Does anybody know why? Right, whenever in the Gospels the Samaritans come up, there is always uh, this tinge of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So we read that, but we might not be aware of why that's the case. Well, let me tell you why it's the case that Samaritans and Jews don't get along so well. When Assyria, which is a nation outside of Israel, conquered Israel in 722 BC, they took a lot of people into exile and they took them out of their own country and caused them to live in Assyria. But there were a group of people in the northern part of the kingdom that were left behind. And when those people were left behind, what Assyria did, it's a smart strategy, is they sent a bunch of people from other nations to live in and among those people to sort of get them to think the way that Assyrians think. That was their goal. And so the people who were left behind, who were Jews, 
intermarried with these people and started to worship their gods and started to, to live in their way of life. And those people over time became known as the Samaritans. So they were half Jewish, most of them, but then half Gentile. And when the Jews were brought back from exile, they found that these people had forsaken the worship of the one true God and begun to worship false gods. Even though over time they began to worship Yahweh again, it was still infused with worship from all these other nations and there became all these differences. For instance, Samaritans believed in only the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the rest of the Torah. So what God spoke through the prophets and what he spoke through uh, Psalms and Proverbs, the Samaritans left that behind. One of the biggest points of distinction that we saw in this story was that the Samaritans did not believe that Jerusalem and the temple built in Jerusalem by Solomon was actually the place that God had chosen to dwell. They believed that God wanted a temple somewhere else. And it was in this story that we found that it was called Mount Gerizim. And there's some reasons in the Old Testament because they didn't believe after the first five books that anything was of the Lord, that they identified this space as the place where Worship was supposed to take place. Well, the Jews didn't care for that. And in you know, about the second century BC, they burned that temple down. But the Samaritans continued to worship on that mountain just without a temple. Now, do you get a little bit of a sense of why there's animosity between these two groups of people? They do not care for one another. Jesus is going out of his way to talk to a woman whom his people have no dealings with. And not only that, he's a man, she's a woman. They could not be more different. So that's the first thing we need to understand to help us understand really the power of this story is that here's a woman who is the opposite of everything Jesus is and he chooses to love and engage with her. Now the second thing you need to understand is the context where this falls in the Gospel of John. If you were just at home tomorrow morning and you were just, I'm gonna read the Gospel of John straight through because we've had a week break since we addressed John chapter three, you don't quite get the feel of what's taking place here in the flow of John's story of Jesus' life. But in John chapter three, Jesus was talking to who? Does anybody remember? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is the righteous of the righteous, at least in his own mind, right? He is as good a Jew as you can be. And Jesus is talking to him and he says, outward appearances are nothing. You have to be born again. That's what we looked at last week. Now, if you're reading the gospel of John and you begin in John chapter one and you see that Jesus is the word made flesh and you're blown away by the, the nature of this one called Jesus. And then in John chapter two, you see that Jesus has come. He does the, the miracle of uh, water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And what that's about is Jesus saying, I've come to replace the Old Testament law. I have come to provide purification in a new way. I am wine and I'm better than water that you've been using. I'm a new thing. That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter two. And so you're blown away again because you think, oh my goodness, he's come to bring a new way of life for me and for everyone in the world, a new way to relate to God. And then John chapter three, you see that he brings that new way of life to bear upon someone who's super religious and really confident in his own righteousness and really thinks he's good. And he confronts that person. He says, you need to know that to enter the kingdom of God, something's gonna have to take place in your heart that hasn't taken place yet. You're gonna have to be born again. And then you flip the page and all of a sudden, he's not talking to the religious of the religious and the good of the good. He's talking to a woman who even among her own people, who are a despised people by the Jews, 
He's talking to a woman who's rejected by her own people. Someone that no one would have thought was good, not even the Samaritans. She is broken and hurting and lost and isolated and alone and rejected. She is the least likely person for a religious leader to be talking to, at least by the standard of their day. And Jesus makes a beeline for her. And he sits with her and he talks to her in kindness and in graciousness and in tenaciousness, if you didn't notice, that he's going to guide her to help her see what she truly needs because she, just like Nicodemus, and just like the disciples are gonna show after, seems to be thinking that Jesus is talking about physical needs and he's saying, you need something in here and I can give it to you. And I wanna show you what it is. Does that help you see the power of this story a little bit more? When we understand where it falls in, in John's story. So then let's look at this question. What does it mean if he's trying to tell this woman that she needs to worship God in spirit and in truth, then what does that mean? Well, the, the guiding idea is found in verse 24. So look at verse 24 with me there because if you wanna know what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, which we should all want to do because it said that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. How many of us are included in that command? All of us, right? We are meant to worship God in spirit and truth, so we should want to know what that means. Well, in order to define that or to help determine what it means, in verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So in order to know what Jesus means when he says we have to worship God in spirit and in truth, he tells us God is spirit, and that's why you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, what John means to tell us and what Jesus is saying is that God does not possess a body. He is spirit, a spiritual being. He is immaterial and unseen. And because he is those things, there are certain things about our worship that should be true. And there are three things that Jesus is really saying it means to worship in spirit and in truth. The first thing he's saying is that because God is immaterial and unseen, our worship must also take place in the unseen places of our being as well as in our outward expression. In other words, when we gather here on Sunday morning, the question that is in front of us every single time, if we're gonna be people who worship in spirit and in truth, is are we worshiping God not just with our mouths but in our very hearts? Is there, is there a worship taking place within us rather than just a worship taking place coming forth from us outwardly? Worship must be inward as well as outward. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus means when he says worship God in spirit and in truth is that he has just gotten done talking about how God uh, can give living water, how he can give living water, that there is this ability for God to give something to you in your heart that deeply satisfies you. And that's the second thing that Jesus means when he says worship God in spirit. Worship him in the unseen places of your heart, but that worship should overflow out of a deep sense of satisfaction in who Jesus is for you. Some have defined faith this way. Whenever you see the word faith in the New Testament, one of the ways to understand faith or to define it is that it's being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. Satisfaction is a great definition of faith. 
Because it doesn't just mean believing with your mind. It means being satisfied in your very being with who God is. To say, Jesus, you have given me all I could ever want. You are enough for me. I am content with you. Whatever else my life may hold or possess, you, having you, I am content because I have you. So worship in spirit is worship that takes place inwardly as well as outwardly. And worship in spirit is also worship that, that sort of bubbles up and flows out of a place of deep contentment, deep fullness in who God is for you in Jesus Christ. Uh, best meal I've ever had, best meal I've ever had was on my honeymoon. Uh, we got to go to the British Virgin Islands because some family members gave us a very kind gift. And so we went to the, one of those all-inclusive resorts, okay, all-inclusive resort, and it was incredible because I'd never been anywhere where I didn't have to pay for everything I took and put on my plate. So it was fantastic, right? So one night, Amanda and I, we make a reservation, and we're sitting, I'm not kidding you, we are sitting 10 paces from the ocean, like on the beach, and they're bringing us food, and they're like, lobster, steak, you know, like, what, what do you call it, a, an amuse-bouche? Am I saying that right? A ma- do, Nobody else knows that? Good, you're all like Philistines like me who don't understand fine cuisine and culture. It's good. I think it means mouth pleaser and it's like a first bite, first taste. Some of you know and you're now afraid to admit it. That's what's happening right now. So we get all this fine dining. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And by the way, the meal's great because the company is great. It's my honeymoon. We're on the beach, right? It's romantic. The whole thing, the food is amazing, Right? And when we finished that meal, could you imagine that I would have wanted anything else? No, because it was a fantastic meal. And when I was done, I was like, I am done. I want nothing else. I am so satisfied by what I've just had that I can't imagine wanting anything else to eat. I've had a great dessert. I've had a wonderful appetizer. I had a great main course. And when Jesus says, worship the Father in spirit, What he's saying is, worship him like someone who's eaten the best meal of your life every day. Because Jesus is the best meal you could ever eat. He is deeply satisfying. He wants you to worship Jesus like you're pushing away from the table and going, I couldn't imagine wanting anything else. Now the second side of what he says is worship him in truth. And that's the the last piece. And what he means when he says worship God in spirit and in truth, the first two things I told you pertain to worshiping God in spirit. The third thing pertains to worshiping God in truth. And it is what you think it is. What Jesus means here is you should worship God according to who he truly is. Not according to who you might imagine him to be. And in this case, Jesus is saying I reveal the very nature of God. So you worship him by seeing who he is, who I reveal him to be. That's what it means to worship God in truth. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. I love this because he's talking about how as a pastor he wants to handle leading his people in worship. And he says it this way. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty, in other words, this is my job, to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. So in other words, When talking about worshiping in spirit and truth, Jonathan Edwards says, I want to raise the affections of my people for God and for Jesus as high as I possibly can do it. But lest we think he's purely after an emotionalism, then he says this, provided 
they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. In other words, what Jonathan Edwards is saying, he's an old theologian if you're not familiar with him, an old Puritan pastor, what he's saying is, I wanna raise my people's emotions and affections and and cherishing of Jesus and of God as high as I possibly can as long as I'm raising those emotions and those affections with what is true about God, not with anything that is untrue. I don't just wanna simply wanna stir them up in their affections by saying something that sounds good. I wanna stir up their affections with what is actually true of God because here's what Jonathan Edwards knows. You don't need to say anything that's not true about God to get affection out of his people. You simply need to offer him for what he already is. He is supreme and sufficient and all-knowing and good and loving and gracious and kind. Stir up the affections of people that you meet for Jesus. Just by talking about who he already is, you don't need to sell them anything. You just need to tell them who he is because he is fine cuisine, a great meal that satisfies to the depths of a person. And if you try and offer them anything else, they're gonna be hungry again real soon. And so we want you, friend, we want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's the first question. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? That's what Jesus is guiding us into. Now can we talk a little bit about how we might help people see that? And let's just see what Jesus does here because it's pretty fantastic. How does Jesus pursue these kinds of worshipers? I'm gonna offer you, I didn't count, six insights. I promise they'll be quick, don't worry. How will he turn us, us into worshipers in spirit and truth and how will he use us to help others do the same? So the first thing we see is that he doesn't miss opportunities in the ordinary course of life. That's the first thing we notice about this story. Jesus does not miss opportunities in the ordinary course of life. Now a lot has been made. I know that, I mean, let, Let's do a little survey. Show of hands. How many of you, you know, you're probably a lot of your churchgoers. How many of you have heard this passage preached before? Oh yeah, a lot of you. Fantastic. Don't worry if it's your first time. I'm jealous that it's your first time because this is such a good story. All right. But many of you have heard this before. And when it says at the beginning of the story that Jesus had to go through Samaria, preachers often make a big deal about the fact that the normal way for people to go when they were traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee and they didn't want to go through Samaria, that the normal route was to go all the way around Samaria outside of the Jordan River into Gentile territory and to come around. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. And so Jesus, was by going this way, was kind of thumbing his nose at that, but the reality is, according to Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, this was the normal path that people took. It was rare, actually, for people to go all the way outside the Jordan because it would take too long. And so Jesus is honestly, he's just going the route that just about everybody would normally go when they were going. Now, do they stop and deal with Samaritans? No, they just made their way quickly through Samaria. But here's what that means. Rather than saying, oh, Jesus had to go there because God was making him go there, 
certainly Jesus is following the Father's lead at every point. There's no doubt about that. So clearly the Father is leading him in all of his activities. But the thing that I find most interesting is it's not just that Jesus is intentional to go through Samaria. He's probably just going that way because it's the ordinary way to go. It's that Jesus, in his ordinary course of life, no matter how tired and exhausted he is, the text makes a point to tell us that he's tired. And so he sits down at the well. He's exhausted from his journey. He's just been ministering to others and he's now moving up to Galilee because he wants to get a little away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. And he's a little, the reason he's moving is because He's a little bit worried about what's gonna happen in Jerusalem if he stays and he needs to get out of town for a little while to let things kind of die down there. And so he's moving up there and even when he's exhausted, he's still ready to minister to somebody. That's the first thing I notice is that Jesus never misses an opportunity no matter how tired he may be. Is that good instruction for us? It doesn't matter how tired we are. It doesn't matter. When, when God brings us an opportunity in the ordinary course of life to talk to someone about Jesus, don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity. I can tell you, there are days where I recognize there's probably a conversation I could have if I go this way and I will go the other way because I'm tired. And I just, I kind of want to avoid it, right? I'm at the grocery store and I see someone, I'm like, man, I know that person. I could probably have a really fruitful conversation with them right now, but I'm gonna duck into aisle seven instead of going into aisle nine because I really just wanna get the cornflakes and get home. And God is teaching me again and again, no, no, aisle nine, friend, aisle nine. Don't miss the opportunities that God gives in the ordinary course of life. And you know, I alluded to this earlier that perhaps some of us would be among that 40% of believers who don't have a relationship with someone who doesn't know the Lord. My encouragement to you is are you, the question I just would ask is are you avoiding Samaria? The ordinary course of Jesus' life took him through Samaria. The ordinary course of your life should take you through Samaria. It should take you into places where there are people who do not know the Lord. Whether it's your work or your neighborhood or a, a, a thing you like to do as an activity, the ordinary course of your life should take you through Samaria. It took Jesus through Samaria and it should do the same for us. There's not a time of day or of the week that we set aside for making worshipers. Jesus makes us into worshipers in the ordinary course of our own lives and we just need eyes to see people and the hand of God leading us to them. I was reminded of this this week. Uh, another pastor in our denomination is named Cedric Brown. He played college football at Washington State and played for the Eagles for a while, but I'll forgive him that. I love him anyway, all right? So Cedric is a pastor in New Jersey, and I was, meeting, I, I was at a conference with him this week, and I was just asking him, how did you come to faith? Like, how did you come to know Jesus? And he said, when I was in college, I was, he's like, I was walking uh, along campus, and a guy literally just, ran across my path, stopped me, shared the gospel with me. I placed my faith in Jesus. The guy walked away. I don't know who he is, where he is. I, I don't know anything about that guy. He just stopped me and said, I need to tell you about Jesus. He told me about him and I came to faith. And I will not, I don't have any clue who that guy is and I will see him again in heaven. And I love that because Cedric is now a pastor for hundreds and hundreds of people and doing amazing gospel work and all that because some guy in the ordinary course, this is a college student at Washington State University who just saw him walking down the path 
uh, of campus and stopped and took the time to share the gospel with him. I love that. I was reminded of just the ordinary course of life. Make worshipers in the ordinary course of your life. The second thing that we see is in verse seven. It's that Jesus is willing to receive from this woman. And I love that. You know, she finds it odd. In verse seven, uh, he asks her, he says, give me a drink. It's not a command, it's a request. And so he asks her for a drink. And she finds that odd because of the whole Samaritan Jewish dynamic. And she says, why would you ask me for a drink? And Jesus uses that to then talk about living water. But the first thing that's really helpful for us to notice is that Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is not afraid to ask for help from someone else. He's not afraid to say to her, put himself in a position of need before her, could you give me a drink of water, please? And this is a great reminder for us. As believers, when we share our faith, sometimes we get real busy talking and we don't listen very much. Right? One of the best things you can do to develop a relationship with someone who doesn't know the Lord is to let them be your teacher. They can teach you about their own beliefs and what they think and where they've come from. Right? Basketball has always been a tool for me. One of the things that I've loved uh, using basketball for to, to meet people who don't know the Lord and to learn from them. To, to help, to put myself in a position of a learner often is helpful in developing a relationship where I might then be able to offer them something once I've received something from them. Do you know that people are usually willing to listen to you if you'll listen to them? Become a great question asker. We have people in our home all the time and one of my goals is I don't always get to share the gospel with them, but if I don't get to move towards the gospel, I certainly want to say something that will leave, you know, something in their mind about the Lord and his goodness. I, I wanna be able to say something, but before I ever say anything, do you know what my goal is? is to simply talk with them about their life. I just wanna know what they think and where they're coming from. So, you know, my goal is to become a great question asker with any person that I encounter so that I would know the way they think and what makes them tick and how they operate. I wanna learn about them and what they think. And I would just encourage you, when you do that, you're putting yourself in the position of a learner who wants to listen. The next thing that we learn, third thing that we learn from Jesus about what he's up to here, as he explains the need for living water and the emptiness of other fountains. I love this. Verses 10 through 18, there's this really top, this is the confusing part of the conversation, right? Where Jesus says, well, she says, how are you gonna get water? He says, if you'd asked, I would've given you living water. And she says, you know, the well's deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? How are you ever gonna get this living water? And then Jesus is trying to get at her inner need, right? And she keeps staying up here. And so finally she says, give me this living water so that I'll never have to come here and draw again. And Jesus then just does a complete left turn. He goes, well, go get your husband, right? Does Jesus know her situation? He does. And yet he chooses, he doesn't seem to be making ground with the whole living water thing. And he says, okay, let's try a different approach here because I need you to see how deep your need is. And he's not, bringing up, he's not bringing up the fact that she's had five husbands and now is with someone who's not her husband and so is probably committing adultery. He's not bringing up her sexual sin to condemn her. He's bringing it up so that she'll see that she needs what he has to offer. He's trying to point her to her heart and her need. And he's so gracious in the way he does it, but he's also tenacious in the way he does it. He's, he's kind of a bulldog who's sunk his teeth in and he's not letting go. He's gonna stay after it until she understands what he's getting at. Now, 
a couple things about this section of the text, right? So when Jesus talks about living water here, he's either referring to his teaching and its ability to satisfy, or he's referring to the Holy Spirit. I tend to think he's probably referring to the Holy Spirit because in John chapter seven, he actually talks in almost the exact same language about the Spirit. When he says, the Spirit whom those who believe in me will possess will become in them a spring of living water flowing up to eternal life and it will flow out of them. That's very similar to what he just said here about living water, right? So I think probably what he's talking about is saying, the living water that I have to give is the very spirit of God who will enter into you if you believe in me. And the, the most important thing to notice that he says about the living water, what makes it different than the kind of water that she's thinking of, is that it becomes a spring which wells up inside of a person and makes it so that they never are thirsty again. Right? That it's self-perpetuating by virtue of being there. Now just think about what he's saying. He's saying that all the other things that you might try to drink from to satisfy your thirst ultimately won't satisfy them. Relationships, which he's about to point out for her, right? Money, power, prestige, fame, whatever it may be, they all are gonna demand that you do things to keep getting them, and so you're gonna have to keep, you're gonna, you're gonna get them, you're gonna get thirsty again, and then you're gonna have to do something else to get more of that same thing to get another relationship, or for the relationship that you're in to satisfy you. Or perhaps you're gonna leave that relationship and then you're gonna go on to the next one hoping that that one will satisfy you. And so you're gonna have to keep drinking. You're gonna have to keep doing things to get something, to, to quench your thirst. And then you're gonna find that like drinking salt water, it's only gonna make you more dehydrated. You're gonna be thirsty again. In Jeremiah chapter two, Jeremiah says this about God's people. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, what Jeremiah is prophesying on behalf of God is that God's people, it's like saying God is a waterfall of living water that we can drink from and be satisfied forever. But instead of drinking from the fountain of living water, we dig out of the dirt a pit until some water runs up out of the ground that's filled with dirt and muck and we stick our face right down in that hole and just suck up as much water as we possibly can and at the same time just get covered in dirt. And we just imagine, oh, isn't this tasteful water? When we look to other things to be living water, we're really just sucking up dirty water out of the ground. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a broken cistern that cannot hold water and because it can't hold water you're digging and you're digging and here comes some water and it starts to recede and so you've got to stick your face down there and suck it up as fast as you can and your lips are covered in the effects of it what Jesus is saying is come and drink living water don't drink from a broken cistern here's how that plays out in terms of I think sharing with people one, we need to learn to point to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy. But it's also helpful, having listened and in love, to point out for folks how they might be drinking from broken cisterns. That's done better with a question than a statement often. But to ask them, is that satisfying you? How is that working? Perhaps even to ask a question, if that's really as satisfying as you're saying it is, why does it result in this? in your life, to point out people's broken cisterns graciously and patiently as Jesus is doing with this woman and her five husbands, to point that out is, a, is to draw them in to the only one who can give them living water.
Last two things. Jesus does something here in verse 16 through 19 where he points out that she's had five husbands. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's kind of the biggest no-duh statement of the entire story, right? But what is she doing? Because she goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. Where should we worship? In Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? When someone points out sin, what's our natural tendency? To distract from that part of the conversation. Let's, let's talk about this over here. And you know, that's normal and it's natural and Jesus is not gonna go down that road. Well, he's, it's interesting because he doesn't stay on the subject of the husbands, which tells us that his point is not to chastise her for her sin. His point is to show her her need. And so he'll actually go with her in the conversation and say, actually, true worshipers have to worship in spirit and truth, not here or there. So he's willing to go with her in the conversation, but he's never thrown off. He's never distracted. He keeps pointing her back to Jesus, but uh, back to himself as the, as the one who can give her living water. But the, the next thing I want you to notice is this. It's just a little, little tidbit. He speaks something that only he can know as the son of God. He speaks prophecy over He tells her something there's no way he could know unless God was revealing it to him, right? Now he, as Jesus, is the son of God, and so he has the ability to do that. But also we're told in scripture that prophecy is a spiritual gift given to believers. And so one of the things I'd encourage you to do is when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're building relationships with someone, pray that God might give you insight into their life, that there's no way you could know unless he gave it to you. Now don't go on Facebook and try and research it and make it look like you're gonna speak prophecy in their life, all right? But pray for them, and if God reveals something to you that you can share with them, it will be a demonstration of God's ability to reveal things about their life that you couldn't know otherwise. I think the gift of prophecy is a powerful gift for the use of evangelism, and it's one we should pray regularly for. It's one we should ask God to give us. And it may not be just prophecy like, oh, there's no way I could know this thing about you unless God showed it to me. That would be awesome. But another thing is just to pray, God, give me insight into their hurts and their feelings and and how they're making choices that I might offer wisdom and insight to them in the course of our friendship. So that's one thing, speaking prophetically. But then the next thing is that to remember that he doesn't get caught up in issues of secondary importance. How many times have you been in a conversation with someone about Jesus and rather than talk about him, they wanna talk about the failings of the church or they wanna talk about some secondary issue related to sexuality or politics or this thing or that thing. And friends, can I just tell you, no one has ever won someone to Jesus by answering their secondary questions about political issues. People come to Jesus because they see who he is. This happened for our team when we were in Jordan. We were visiting with a man from Syria who's Muslim and he wanted us to tell him about you know, who we were and what we believed in, and so we shared that with him. And do you know what his, rather than talk about Jesus, you know what he wanted to talk about? He wanted to talk about why is the church broken into so many denominations that don't agree with one another? That seems to me like evidence for the fact that Jesus isn't true. And so we went round and round for a little while, and finally I just said, look, friend, can I just tell you something? It's not wrong to talk about these things. Those are great questions, and the church has many failings. There's many reasons why we have not followed Jesus as we should have. But can I tell you that the most important thing that you need to deal with is whether or not what Jesus said about himself is true. Is he who he claimed to be and did he rise from the dead? Because if he is who he said he was and he rose from the dead, then all those things are secondary and you need to deal with the primary question. 
So Jesus here, not unlike that, stays focused on the subject at hand. And he's gonna use her distraction to bring it back to the subject of himself and whether or not he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. Last thing that we see, and then we're gonna worship. In fact, worship team, why don't you guys come on up? Because we're gonna finish with this. The last thing I want you to know, friends, is that he wants to use you He wants to use you to share with others who he is. And you don't have to look any further than this. When the disciples come back and they, he says, they say, "Um, Rabbi, why don't you eat something? What does Jesus reply? I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of God. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that if we're not helping people become worshipers of God in spirit and truth that we're starving ourselves. If that's Jesus' food, then who else's food is it? It's our food. It's my food. It's your food. And you're spiritually starving yourself if you don't share your faith. Does that make sense? If you don't share your faith, you're spiritually starving yourself. As your pastor, I want you to have good meals. I want you to eat and drink and be full and satisfied. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Don't be distracted anymore and don't be scared. Partake of the food that is your food, which is to share the gospel.